more, better, faster. Um, we don't tend to really revert and say, you know what, I'm now okay with five-day shipping after you've gotten in, you know, used to two. So consumer standards don't tend to go backward. And then obviously I, I tie it back to my own experience. Um, you know, I think that's a good way to kind of filter things. And and I think I will probably do more things online now than I did pre-pandemic because you realize the convenience benefits, because you're, you know, that saves me 30 minutes. You've already set up the accounts. You've already figured it out. And so by lowering the barriers, forcing this adoption, frankly, because it was such a, um, such an advantageous period, especially for e-commerce when you're stuck at home and, and maybe not wanting to go out and be among a bunch of people, um, you've lowered the barriers and, you know, made consumer habits that will likely be sticky. Welcome to the A-Fire podcast, now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. So in the last 18 months of COVID, as all kinds of products became more expensive or even impossible to get, ranging from lumber and steel to cars, homes, and even toilet paper, everyone has started to focus on the supply chain in ways that they probably didn't before. It's always been important, of course, but, but, but now we can see it. And to help us understand what we see, Melinda McLaughlin, uh, the uh, global head of research at Prologis, is on the show to share her insights on the supply chain, what it's doing and how it's changing. So thank you, Melinda, for being a part of the AFIRE podcast. Happy to be here, Gunnar. So uh, in your article, which you wrote for the summer issue of AFIRE Summit that came out in August, I encourage everyone to uh, read it. It's right on our website. Uh, you, you had an article that you called Supply Change. Nice little turn of phrase there, uh, which you wrote with uh, Heather Belfour, the head of, of US research for uh, Prologis. Um, in which you talked about and argued that the supply chain itself is changing. So how is it? How significant is that change? And 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 you know, give me a picture really of what the whole thing looks like and why. <laughs> Small question, right? Um, well, first to go back to what you said, I think the supply chain is visible today in ways we've never expected. But these changes have been happening for some time. So a few things to tie it together. One, retail is changing. Consumption, you know, we're the world's largest owner of logistics real estate. Behind our customers, they're all driven pretty much by consumption. And the way consumers consume has changed. And that leads to very specific needs from the supply chain. So one, I think the future of retail um, is different, certainly, than it was in past cycles. Second, Supply chains, yes, have always changed, and they've changed very slowly. I think what's unique about the current period is we're seeing these changes happen quite quickly in real time and with higher visibility. Because we have seen a period where I think the fundamental assumption with supply chains, that they would continue to work. Again, they were allowed to be in the background because they functioned. And what we saw not just with the pandemic, but before that, you know, some of these trade tensions is the smooth movement of goods between countries in particular, um, but around the world, even within ecosystems, um, 
that smooth functioning was something that was assumed because it worked until it started not to. And so when you had Brexit, when you had the U.S.-China tariffs, and then when you have a series of localized disruptions, whether it's a port strike or a natural disaster, um, and then culminating in a global pandemic, you start to question that assumption that a just-in-time inventory practice will will continue to work and yield the benefits for your customers that it needs to. Um, so one, future of retail. Two, I call that really future of risk management in the supply chains. And then three, all sorts of aspects of the business are just becoming more difficult. So we talk a lot about demographic trends that, again, these aren't new. Um, COVID did not create any of these, but I think we're seeing them certainly be accelerated, such as the labor shortage. Um, and then you start to think about the ways technology is moving quickly and might be able to help with some of these more systemic problems um, that are emerging in these systemic challenges going forward. Um, and that's really about the future of work. So when we take a step back and we think about the way consumers have changed, the way business models have changed, um, and the way the world has changed overall, I think it's we're poised for an era of pretty rapid transformation in supply chains. And that's, you know, coming from a practice that tends to move at a, a glacial pace. Yes, there's always been change, but it does happen, tend to happen slowly. And I think we're seeing a quickening um, that it's probably unprecedented. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, just in time was like the miracle of 25 years ago and how it was transforming how we manufactured and what we did and, and, and creating efficiency. And it was, it was pretty great for a while. Um, but to your point, not so great at the moment. Now, what does that mean? I mean what's the next phase for us? So it, you know, if it's not just in time, what is it? I think, I mean, we like to say just in case. Um, there does need to be a layer of safety stock in inventories to weather these types of disruptions. When we think about the competitive environment for our customers, the domains, I think, that used to be regionalized or a very specific customer segment when you think about the way competition happens in retail today it's it's all global all the time for everyone which means if you're not tuned into customers if you can't anticipate their needs if you can't meet these ever increasing service level requirements having goods reliably in stock a ton of choice you know, you're going to fall behind because consumers have more choice today than ever with e-commerce you've you're not just shopping at the local store. You're shopping at any store around the world. Part of what I'm, 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 I'm curious about. So, you know, we have been talking for 25 years about how consumers require, um, you know, access to everything at the best price and all that stuff. And the Internet's only made that, you know, unbelievable in terms of what people are doing. And yet now we're in an environment because perhaps because it's a limited time. But right now there's adjusting of the supply chain. And even online, you can't get things that you could get before. You can't. Is there a possibility that maybe there is a transition in terms of how consumers are, are going to behave, not just now, but going forward in terms of their relationship to goods and the amount of goods that uh, they consume? I think it's a great question. And, and there's definitely a part of this we just don't know yet. We're still in it. You know, life is not back to normal. I wish it were. Um, so there's we get a lot of where will things shake out. So I do tend to tend to look back and do two things. You know, one, 
what's the long-term trajectory? And I do think the long-term trajectory for consumers is more, better, faster. Um, we don't tend to really revert and say, you know what, I'm now okay with five-day shipping after you've gotten in, you know, used to two. So consumer standards don't tend to go backward. Okay. And then obviously I, I tie it back to my own experience. Um, you know, I think that's a good way to kind of filter things. And and I think I will probably do more things online now than I did pre-pandemic because you realize the convenience benefits. Yeah. Because you're, you know, that saves me 30 minutes. You've already set up the accounts. You've already figured it out. And so by lowering the barriers, forcing this adoption, frankly, because it was such a... Um, such an advantageous period, especially for e-commerce when you're stuck at home and and maybe not wanting to go out and be among a bunch of people. Um, you've lowered the barriers and, you know, made consumer habits that will likely be sticky. So uh, obviously the elephant in every room, every discussion is COVID and, and how it's just kind of rocked our world uh, in so many ways. And, and certainly referring to one in terms of shopping habits and where they're going. But how do you think, especially when it comes to the way we think about logistics in the supply chain, uh, that uh, COVID changes will continue? Why? I mean, a lot of people say, oh, they're going to continue because this is where it is. But I, I don't know. I, I've heard people say things like, well, people are going to go back to stores when they can go. Uh, although it's now been 18 months. It's been a while. Maybe they forgot where the stores are. Maybe the stores aren't there. But I am curious how you and your team are thinking uh, kind of long term in terms of how some of what we're, we've become accustomed to in the last two years uh, will continue or not continue. It's a great question, Gunnar. And I think we see changes that are likely to be sustainable in, in all areas. So direct to consumer delivery, e-commerce. One reason why we think not only does that remain a high proportion of retail sales, but it's likely to keep growing um, is one, you know, I already talked about sticky consumer habits. You just become used to it and, and like the benefits. Certainly it's been growing fast before the pandemic for a reason. Um, two is there is probably a lack of retail options around you. There will be stores that have closed and probably, especially specialty goods, certain things you'll have to go online to get, um, because there's just not a physical option nearby. And then third, and probably the one we're kind of best positioned to comment on because of visibility is the service level improvements companies are making to be able to deliver more goods reliably. So used to be to buy certain types of things, you would still have to have a long wait time. Um, you know, you don't get the visibility of when it can actually be at your doorstep. You have to accept a lot of uh, compromises to do some, some online shopping. Today, because customers are building out these networks, making sure they have goods that can go direct to consumers' doorsteps more quickly, expanding those choices, expanding those options, um, you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling cycle. I think, you know, everybody talks about Amazon, but they really are the best example of raising the bar and generating sales activity and, and repeat consumers from that. Um, so I do think, you know, that's the overall trajectory. Now, we've said from the beginning when we saw this shift that, yeah, there will be a snapback period. We've been artificially constrained. We can't, you know, today you can go out to stores and, and things like that. You might be limited capacity, still wearing a mask, but in most places you can go out and shop. 
And when it starts to feel safer and safer, certainly, I think there's pent up demand to go out there, to be among people, to spend on services, travel, entertainment, rather than simply goods. We have been in a period where the 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 trend switched, you know, over the long period, it was sort of we were spending more on services than goods. In the pandemic, dramatic shift the other way for the reasons you would expect. Mm-hmm. So we do expect, you know, yeah. a little bit of volatility as things hopefully continue to go back trend toward normal. Um, but overall, I think this is an important e-fulfillment is going to be an important part of supply chains going forward and continue to capture that revenue share that makes it an essential you know, part of planning. Now, the second thing which I haven't brought up, but I do think our uh, ideas of what a good store experience can be and like the options you should have going to, especially some of the larger retail outlets, has also changed. So for those of you who like to do drive up and have, you know, goods loaded into your car, um, I don't think that goes away. I think consumers like that. And again, you know, to speak to those consumer standards, don't go backwards. I don't think it would go well if you were like, well, that option is now no longer available, Um, which those types of activities in and of themselves change the relationship between your supply chain and your store functionality. You need to have rapid replenishment options because, you know, if you're online and you see the stock there and then you get to the store and they're like, oh, sorry, it's out of stock. You know, that's going to be a bad customer experience versus in the past, the store experiences, if it's on the shelf, you got it. And if it's not off the shelf, you know, you don't really know why or think about it. The visibility that we have today um, is really a game changer. I agree. And it seems like what, what what's happening now is that the physical world is starting to mimic you know, what you get when you order something with FedEx or, or you know, with UPS or something like that, where you can see where it is and everything else. I mean, I think that level of transparency is becoming the standard. It, it, I really encourage everyone uh, to read her article, in great part because she has some beautiful charts that kind of help explain where this is going as well and could be useful as you're thinking through your own strategies uh, around logistics and around retail and around all the other forms of real estate that are impacted, which basically means everything uh, impacted by uh, logistics at this point. Um, would love to get your 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 thoughts on this. Now, you know, politicians love to talk about it, I think, because it helps them get elected, that they're going to onshore all manufacturing and and, and it's all going to be awesome. And, and, you know, places like Michigan are going to have more jobs than they know what to do with, which may happen, I guess. But it, it does seem like a lot. Uh, as you're looking at these supply chains, uh, are you having to prepare for uh, suddenly having your supply chain be a, a couple of hundred miles as opposed to a couple of thousand miles? Or or w- what's going to happen? Well, I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen. As you mentioned, it's a political football, which makes it very hard to predict where it's going. Um, but I do think there are a couple things, you know, I can comment on. One, again, we're pretty focused on that consumption end. So the vast majority of our customers, they are th- where they are because that's where their end consumer is. Um, But there's some markets we operate in that um, do see that consumption growth, partly because of the good jobs that are created through manufacturing. So thinking about the twin trends of kind of higher service levels, faster delivery times, and insulating your supply chain from disruption, I do think we see more nearshoring activities than onshoring necessarily. So I'll start with the U.S. There will probably be specific industries that are incentivized uh, financially to come back 
onshore. I think medicals, you know, obviously an example that's front of mind today, but we've also seen semiconductors, a few others. Because the economics don't make sense still, even with more automation, even with, um, you know, kind of the service level imperative, that will require government subsidies and, you know, a specific infrastructure to make that happen. But if you're thinking about getting closer to your end consumers while still, you know, leveraging kind of the economics of globalization. I think some areas where we see that growth are markets like along the border in Mexico and um, Poland, where, you know, in Poland, you're more, you're closer to your European customer base. In Mexico, obviously, it's the U.S. customer base. And the way that translates to some of the demand for our customers is to have redundant facilities on either side of the border or to make sure that your um, supply chain is robust in where it's sourcing goods from. So in the U.S., obviously, the Southern California market, largest market in the U.S., 40% of our imports or more still come through that port. But we're seeing more customers make sure they have access to ports of Savannah, New York, New Jersey on the East Coast, as well as a Texas presence. So that if you do need to shift sourcing practices, you've got a lot of options, right? Um, so I do think, you know, onshoring kind of is a still remains a remains to be seen operation. But we do see more people thinking about, you know, how do we have these more regional, I would say continental strategies rather than, you know, truly global. And augmenting that a little bit is Chinese supply chains are now turning a lot more inward. They've had immense growth in their own consumer base. And so it's not that those facilities, because export patterns might be changing, and they haven't yet, but they might. It's not because export patterns have changed, but rather there's a bigger consumption opportunity at home for those you know, Chinese companies than there used to be. So it is all kind of coming together to facilitate this resilience, this service level um, imperative that we see. It's almost like we have this tremendous river of trade that's been coming from China through Long Beach and then to the rest of the country. And we now have all these other streams that seem to be getting wider. Um, what does that do to Long Beach, do you think? I think Long Beach will remain Long Beach. I mean, it's still the fastest route. And even though we've seen some production shift to other you know, South Asian centers, you know, that's going to be still your most efficient route. Shipping is your most cost efficient, you know, air, you know, uh, much more expensive, certainly. Um, and again, you know, even though I'm talking about supply chains changing more quickly, big, big shifts like this will still happen slowly and over time. So the combination of it probably remaining the U.S.'s dominant port and the fact that there are 25 million people there to serve means that's going to remain a hugely attractive market for quite some time. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think, you know, again, we see growth. We see growth in Texas along the same lines. There's more, you know, truck traffic, but also the population there is growing. So it all, again, kind of aligns to serve those dual purposes of supply chain resilience and um, getting right to those end consumers. Well, it's, it's not that different when you think about it, about all the discussions around migration of people uh, to these different places, and it all kind of interacts with each other. And I don't think we've seen this kind of migration, in a very, certainly not in our lifetimes, uh, from different mar between markets and two different markets. So it's, I think it's going to be interesting to see 
what that looks like when they're done um, as we go through this. Uh, any kind of thoughts about what you are watching, what you are concerned about that you think we should pay closer attention to um, in the years ahead? Well, you know, there's a lot of change today. And so we're watching a lot. Um, but one thing I'm thinking a lot more about is this aspect of um, sustainability, of conscious consumerism. How do you start to build that into your supply chain so that it becomes a lot more part of the the brand awareness? I think we've seen examples of of some companies, you know, Patagonia comes to mind that have taken more of a forward stance and really energized their consumer base. So I think that's one. How how do brands differentiate in the future? And then how might that impact supply chain requirements, particularly as we see the infrastructure bill and some other, you know, potentially big forces coming into play in the, the environment? So what happens with um, electrification of vehicles and in particular the delivery fleet is something I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, I think the other is general capacity constraints and what's happening in the development environment for logistics. Overall, um, we entered the pandemic with pretty low vacancy rates. Um, it, because of the surge of demand from things like e-commerce and a bit of a slowdown in, in mid-2020 on speculative construction, it's become much worse. So we have a lot of customers who are wanting to grow and not able to find the space. And in the background, replacement costs for these buildings, land costs in particular, but all the materials, you know, we talked about the supply chain disruptions, its impact on steel and lumber. Um, and then, you know, the labor shortage that might be a structural thing in some markets, but certainly today um, is impacting customers of all types. And I would say businesses, you know, across the supply chain and, and all the other property types, retailers certainly finding it hard to find retail staff, tech employers finding it hard to get their, well, their offices filled, their virtual offices filled. Um, you know, I think those, all the capacity constraints that we're seeing come to light today and frankly getting more attention than, than we ever have, probably still not getting quite enough um, because I think you know, man, three quarters ago, I was thinking the supply chain disruptions would be done mid-year 2021. And now it's year end 2020. And, you know, who knows how long this will this will go on. And it's just exposed some fragility that I think our customers are thinking about. We're certainly thinking about how do we help solve that. Well, um, I think um, your customers are lucky to be working with you and your colleagues uh, to get a sense of what is really happening. I encourage everyone to reach out to uh, you, Melinda, and certainly to read this article uh, to help us understand better what's happening with logistics, even if you're not investing uh, actively in the logistics space. I think it has a, such an impact um, on every sector of commercial real estate, if not on any every sector of life. So it's pretty darn important. And now we can see it. Now we're looking and, and now we need an explanation. So thank you, Melinda, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Thank you, Gunnar, so much for having me. You've been listening to the A-Fire Podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. A-Fire is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the A-Fire Podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. A-Fire is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the A-Fire Podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of A-Fire. 
To learn more about the AFIRE podcast, including underwriting and guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.